All right, well, good morning, everybody. One more time. Good morning, everyone. Hey, uh, thanks so much for being at Faith today. If we haven't met, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. It's great to have you with us in the room today. It is great to have you with us online today. Um, there is a lot going on today. We have uh, kind of stuffed more into this day than uh, I anticipated we would. And uh, so it's been full. As uh, Before we even jump into things today, there's some news that we got to work through. I've got uh, bad news and good news. So which do you want first? Everybody always says that. I don't get, all right, so all right, so here's the deal. Um, last weekend we prayed for Sue Heights as she entered into hospice care, and I got a, my phone kind of blew up this morning, and folks let me know that Sue went home to be with Jesus uh, early this morning. Yeah. So for um, for us, that's bad news. For Sue, that's good news. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I saw Sue mid last week and went home praying that Sue would go home to be with Jesus. Uh, as my friend Jay said, her bags were packed and she was ready to go. And so um, we want to pray for her family uh, and her friends. Uh, she was deeply connected here and it's going to be missed quite a bit. So, so that's, that's bad news. On, on the good news side of things, Back in July, we had a group uh, called Shepherd Staff come out and spend some time with us here at Faith. We have been uh, in the midst of a search for a new youth pastor, and the, the market right now is very difficult for hiring pastors, and we tried to do that independently, could not get the traction we needed, and so partnered with a consulting firm. Um, they have uh, reached out to about 12,000 candidates. So we hired them because they could recruit on levels that I could not. And they are doing that, right? And so um, now uh, they have had more serious conversations with about 100 of those folks and have been like scrubbing out the folks who are not a good fit for us. And uh, in the next couple of weeks, they should begin presenting us candidates. And this is a little bit different for me. Uh, the candidates who they are presenting already know us. They've been trolling us online. They've been looking at our social media. I know, it's, you know, and so uh, hopefully you've been behaving in the Facebook page and all that kind of stuff. And so when we get a candidate, it'll be somebody who like knows us and wants to be here. And then we're just trying to figure out who is the best fit for us. So we want to be praying for that as well. Uh, there is great programming for our students. Our volunteers and leaders have been still working really hard on this. And so like uh, tonight is a big kickoff for high school. Wednesday night, big kickoff for middle school. And we're excited about getting uh, the right person on our staff to lead in that. So we want to pray for student ministry Pray for Sue's family, our time together, and then we'll jump into things. Father, I thank you for the gift of Sue. Um, that's right. Amen. Uh, God, thank you so much for her optimism. And every time I talk to her and she got the, the next piece of bad news, um, she just had an incredible attitude about that. Father, pray you would have your hands on her family, on her friends who are um, mourning her loss and that you would bring peace and comfort and in time healing. Father, we pray for student ministry here at Faith that you would continue to bless that. Thank you so much for uh, volunteers and leaders who have stepped up and are working hard to fill in the gap. 
And Father, we just pray you would bring the right pastor students here to our church in your time. Um, I'd like your time to be quicker, but we pray you would bring the right person in your time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, walking down memory lane, pandemic memories. Uh, I remember one of my first ones is I was standing in, a, in the family room of our home with my wife and daughter, and we had the news conference on, and the governor's talking about how she's getting ready to issue an executive order, the first of a few, and um, uh, based on the Emergency Management Act and how she's essentially going to put the state into lockdown. And, um, you know, like once this order goes into effect, you know, like I think it was going to be midnight that night, Nobody goes to restaurants. Nobody's going to the movies. You can't go, you know, a lot of us couldn't go into work. Uh, you can't go to school. You, um, you know, they, they're like, hey, please don't go to church. Please don't do family gatherings. Uh, don't, don't shop if you don't have to. In fact, if you're going to go shopping, be ready to stand out in line in the cold. You know, while there's somebody at the front door with a little clicker and a walkie-talkie keeping track of how many folks are going in, and somebody at the exit, you know, keeping track of how many folks are leaving, and three people walk on, they're like, three people left, you know, and then three people can come in. And we stood out in the, anybody remember standing out in the cold? What? Yeah, it was good times, right? And so I remember sitting there, and the governor's talking about this, and she says, okay, this is going to go in three weeks. She said, three weeks. And there was this audible <gasps> gasp that you could hear in the family room from my daughter and I. We couldn't believe that we were going to be sentenced to confinement for the next three weeks. And little did we know, that was like a drop in the bucket for how much isolation and quarantining and distancing we were going to be doing. That went on for way longer than three weeks. It went on for months and months. For some of us, it went on for year, years. So, some of us, there are still people living that way today. Now, looking back in retrospect, we, we have learned that all that isolation came at a cost. So, some of the statistics associated with that isolation are, are just startling. For example, Worldwide, during the pandemic, depression and anxiety increased by 25% across the globe. Here in the United States, they did a study with individuals 18 to 35. 80% of them reported significant signs of depression in their lives. 61% of them reported moderate to severe anxiety. And half of them, you know, like, they, they were like, Double the amount of folks in that city were like, hey, I'm wrestling with suicide. We tried to self-medicate in the midst of this. I say this tongue-in-cheek. I repeat, I say this tongue-in-cheek. Thank goodness, you know, marijuana was considered a, uh, like, this is, that we got to have this one. You know, like, certain industries were considered, like, you have to have this. You know, thank goodness, the pot industry, you know, so, you know kept going during the pandemic, you know. Tongue in cheek, all right? Don't put it on your connection card. I'm going to ignore it. I'm just going to throw it away, all right? But during the pandemic, we tried to self-medicate. Drug use, alcohol use, all went way up. 
overdoses skyrocketed. And in spite of our efforts to to self-medicate, we got ugly with each other. Some of the statistics related to domestic violence, in parts of China, domestic violence increased by 300%. In Argentina, 25, Cyprus, 30, Singapore, 33, Brazil, 50%. Some cities here in the United States saw a 22% increase in domestic violence. Some communities, demographics, saw it increase by 50%. And all of that was bad for our marriages. There's a law firm that that's, you know, sells legal forms prepared by licensed attorneys. They're, let's agree to get a divorce form. They saw a 34% increase in the sale of that form in the first six months of 2020. See, in the pandemic, we saw, undeniably, hey, you know, little bit of solitude, that can be a beneficial thing. But ongoing isolation will starve our souls. A little bit of solitude, getting away, I'm just going to be quiet, I'm going to get out of nature, get by myself. That's a good thing. But we've reached the point of diminishing returns. And we saw that this ongoing isolation was starving something deep within us that we needed. During the pandemic, we learned that we are better together instead of living in isolation. Now, sometimes preachers are predictable. You can laugh at that. It's okay. It's at my expense. I told the joke, right? But sometimes preachers are predictable. Like, you know what they're going to say. You know how they're going to say it. They're going to use alliteration. Nobody caught that. It was cute when I wrote it. Okay. Um, But, like, and some people like that. Like, some people are like, hey, I like my preacher predictable. There's a comfort in the stability and, you know, like, knowing what's coming. Other people are like, I don't want my preacher to be predictable. You know, break the mold up there, you know. Who likes a preacher predictable? Anybody? No? Who who wants an unpredictable preacher? Uh, I got good news and bad news. (laughs) You're getting predictable today, all right? Because, like, if you expect your preacher to tell you, like, who's the first person you expect your preacher to tell you you're better together with? Jesus, exactly, you know. And, and, and I say that because Jesus is almost always the right answer in church, right? Um, but beyond that, like, the Bible talks a lot about what life looks like in isolation from Jesus and what look, life looks like together with Jesus. And, and while I absolutely believe the Bible to be God's truth for my life, I would tell you you're better together with Jesus, not just because the Bible says it, not just because it's always the right answer at church, but I've lived it. As somebody who has lived in isolation from Jesus and somebody who's lived, better, lived together with him, I'm telling you, life is better with him. Now, the Bible does talk about this. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul just paints this picture of what life looks like in isolation from Jesus and what life can look like together with him. And Paul, as he begins, he basically says, hey, I got good news and bad news. Now, he doesn't care what you want first. He just gives you the bad news first, and he's like, deal with it, right? So here's how Paul begins as he, he launches into the bad news about a life in isolation with Jesus, from Jesus. He says this, he says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of the world 
and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, if you hear this or you read this and at first blush you think, that's kind of abrasive. You know why that is? Because this is abrasive. Right? In fact, not only is it abrasive, it is counterintuitive, it is countercultural, at times it is downright offensive, and by the time we get done unpacking some of what Paul has to say, some of you are going to regret having come to church today or tuned in on the live stream. But hang in there with Paul, all right? Because I'm telling you right now, if you listen to what he has to say, for many of us, if we're honest, it's going to ring true. And you got to go through the bad news to get to the good news. And I'm telling you right now, the good news is going to worth, it's going to be worth getting to. But you got to start with the bad news. So as Paul starts with the bad news, he says, as for you. Now, who's the you Paul is talking to? It's you. <laughs> it's you sitting in here. It's you watching on, on, on your device. And don't, don't, listen, Paul's an equal opportunity offender. He's talking, uh, talking to me. He's talking to the person next to you, right? For sure he's talking to the person behind you, right? You know, but Paul's like, as for you, he's like, listen, you, eyeballs right here, you, I'm talking to you. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. In other words, when you were transgressing, when you were doing things you knew you weren't supposed to do, it was killing you spiritually. And it, Again, if we're honest, we, like we've experienced this. You, you ever had a time where you, you knew you weren't supposed to do that thing? And you're like, you know what, I'm doing it anyway. And after you did it, you felt something inside you grow cold. Or you, you, like you were dead in your sins. You ever had a time where there was something you knew you should have done? And you're like, I'm not doing that. And when you refused to do it, you let the opportunity pass you by you felt something inside of you just shrivel up a little bit. That, that's spiritual death at work. And some of us, like, we've done this so consistently, we've actually flatlined in certain areas of our lives. There's that thing that we, we can remember a time where, like, we would do that thing and we felt bad about it and we just kept doing it and now we're at a point where we can do it we don't feel a thing anymore. Because spiritually we've grown dead. And here's the thing, what Paul's talking about, like, this isn't new. You can go back to Genesis 3, the first record of human history and spirituality, and you can watch as humanity goes from living in harmony with God to, to hiding from God and being at odds with God. And now we're all pointing fingers because it's not my fault, it's hers and it's his and it's theirs. And not much has changed. And so as Paul begins, he's like, listen, you were dead spiritually as you were living in transgression and sin. As you were doing things you knew you weren't supposed to do, as you were failing to do things you knew you should have done. And then as, as Paul continues, he tells us, like, where some of this, how this works its way into our lives. He says, as you were doing this, you were following the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now working those who are disobedient. In other words, before I was doing life with Jesus, like when I'm living in isolation from him, and I'm, and I'm doing things I know I shouldn't, and I'm not doing things that I know that I should, that really what's going on is I'm taking my cues from the culture that surrounds me. 
When it comes to things, you know, in my life, like, you know, hey, how am I going to do money or sexuality or relationships or politics or entertainment or interpersonal interactions or vocation or how I'm going to define my identity and more? I listen to what my culture has to say, and that's the way I'm going to let myself think and live as I move forward. And then, not content to offend us just a little bit, Paul takes it a step further and he says, let me tell you what's behind your culture. It's the, it's the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the disobedient. He's like, listen, there are demonic, dark forces behind this culture. You know? So Paul's like, hey, listen, I just get, got some news for you. You're dead. And you're dead because you've been taking your cues from your culture and your culture's been influenced by dark demonic spiritual forces. And and then Paul says, lest you try and point a finger, well, it's it's my culture's fault, it's the devil's fault. He says this next, he says, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Paul's like, there is something broken inside of you. This isn't something that your culture did to you. It's not something that the devil did to you. No, all they did is take advantage of what was already there inside of you and egg it on. You're born broken. And they just, they grabbed hold of that and ran with it. See, this idea that people are forever getting better, that each generation is a little bit morally evolved than the next, Paul just like blows that all up. He's like, no, you, you, were, you were spiritually dead as you followed a, 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 a worldview and a thinking and a system that's influenced by demonic forces that's just egging on things that are broken inside of you already. And then to wrap it all up, Paul says that we are by nature deserving wrath. In other words, we got it coming. That God has every right to thump us and we've got nothing we can say in our defense. So, who's glad they came to church today for that? Yeah. That's bad news. But again, I believe the bad news to be true. And again, I am convinced that the Bible contains God's truth for my life. But I believe it to be true not just because it's in the Bible, because I've lived this. Like, I, I grew up around church. The rule in our house was if you're going to live here, you're going to go to church. And I wasn't stupid. They're feeding me. They're housing me. They're doing my laundry for me. I show up at this place for an hour and 15 minutes. Fine, whatever. (laughs) But I grew up being taught what the right and wrong things were in life. Trouble was I just wanted a part of them. I was going to do everything I could to keep Jesus at arm's length because he was going to ruin my fun. And when it came to doing things I knew I wasn't supposed to do, this wasn't a casual pursuit. I ran hard after those things. And when it came to the standard that God had for me to live into, I regularly fell short of it. And as I grew into adulthood, I had this ever-increasing sense that I was dying on the inside. I was so desperate to be alive. I just didn't know how to get there. And I tried to, like, I chased after girls, and I chased after education, and money, and booze, and anything I could think of to fill that void. And every time I'd find something new, I'd get this little bump, and then drop back down into undeniable emptiness. 
I was spiritually dead, and I knew it. Here's the thing. This, this is the bad news that Paul is giving us. But there isn't just bad news. And, and listen, if you're watching online, if you're sitting here in the room, and what Paul is saying rings true. Like if you know there's something missing and you cannot fill it yourself no matter how you try. If you're dead on the inside and you long to be alive, Paul has good news for you. And the good news is as good as the bad news is bad. As he begins the good news, Paul says this next. He says, God made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in kindness, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, that is a dense passage here. Way more theology than we can unpack in the time we have. We're going to get after a little bit of it. Paul starts off and he says, hey, you were dead when you're living in isolation from Jesus, but when you do life together with Jesus, God makes you alive. And that is good news because there's nobody else that can do that. Think about it. Think about people you know who are physically dead. How much have they changed since they died? <laughs> Hopefully not much, right? Because right? usually, like physically dead people, they don't try harder, they don't, they, don't, they don't make a fresh start, they don't turn over a new leaf. Like once they did, that's it. That's who they were, that's, that's, we're done. It's the same with spiritually dead people. I am no more capable of changing myself spiritually my own than a physically dead person is of changing themselves. If a physically dead person is starting to change, there is something miraculous happening there. Paul says, you are spiritually dead, but God made you spiritually alive. He goes, oh, Dr. Frankenstein and reanimates you. Everything from Genesis 3 gets reversed. We're no longer at odds with God, we're at peace with God. We don't have to hide from God, we get to draw near. I don't have to point fingers because I am good now. That thing that I could not fill inside of me, God satiates that need. What sin and trespass put to death, God raises to life again. Paul continues. He says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Now let me ask you, what in the world does that mean? Like we have this nasty habit in church circles of saying these really fluffy spiritual kind of things with no clue as to what they mean to us in our lives. So like, what's it mean that you're seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms? Well, I'll level with you. I'm not dogmatically certain what that means. And a lot of people smarter than me aren't sure either, but I have some suspicions. I suspect Paul is speaking to something past and to something future, and we got time to talk about past. And by past, I mean like way back, like temple model worship, sacrificial system kind of past. Ancient Israelites worshiped in the temple through the sacrificial system. And in the temple, 
you had a room that the priests worked in. And, and the, like the details of that room were intentional and incredibly specific. In that room, the priests would work. In that room, there's a table for the priests to work at. On that table, you have bowls and pitchers and basins and, and brushes that he works with. In the room, there's a lampstand to you know, give light so he can see what he's working on. But in that room where the directions are incredibly specific, there is no chair. There's no chair. And that's on purpose. That, that room that is conspicuously absent of a chair, it is in part communicating a message. The priest's work is never done. Seven days a week, there's a priest working in that room. The priest working in that room is exempt from the Sabbath regulations. Seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, there's always another sacrifice to be made. There's always another offering to be given. There's always another confession to be heard. It doesn't matter how long, how hard that priest worked. It doesn't matter how hard he strives. The work is never done. God is never satisfied. But then Jesus comes. We're told that Jesus lives a life free from transgression and sin. That Jesus offers himself up once and for all. A sacrifice for the sins of humanity. We're told that Jesus' dead body is laid in a tomb, that on the third day he rose again. Eventually he ascends into heaven, and when he gets there, what does he do? He sits at the right hand of the Father. He does what no other priest before him ever could do. The justice, the holiness of God are satisfied in the death of Jesus. And he rests from that work. Paul says, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. You are seated, when, when God sees you positionally, he sees you seated with Jesus. You don't have to work. You don't have to strive. You don't have to figure out some way to earn your way into God's good graces because what you could never hope to do yourself has been done for you. You just sit and rest in that truth. Now, I would argue that this idea that we were dead and we were made alive, that, that we had earned a seat in hell and we got a chair in heaven, that this is good news. But I would ask you to ask yourself, why? Like, why would God do that? Why, why when we were dead and deserving wrath, did God make us alive and seat us in heaven with Jesus? It wasn't like our superior spiritual state. We were not like the, 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 the first round draft pick, the coveted free agent, you know, like these the spiritual superstars. No, we were dead. We were the second string. We were the bench warmers. So why would God do this? Well, Paul tells us why. He says, because of his great love for us. Just let that sink, let that sink in. God loves you. God, 
The one who, who stood on the scaffold of nothing but his own being and spoke into a not yet world and said, let there be light. And who today holds all things together by the power of his word. That God loves you. And he doesn't just love you with a, with a sit around and talk about it kind of love. He, he loves you with a let me stand up and show you about it kind of love. It's one thing to say, you know, I love you. Let's get married. And then I get to know the real you. <laughs> and I say, I'm out of here. It is a whole nother thing to truly and fully know the very worst about someone and choose to unconditionally love them. That's the kind of, that's the kind of love that God has for you. That's what motivated him to take you from death to life, from wrath to a seat in heaven. And not only does Paul tell us what motivated God to do this, he tells us the means by which God accomplished it. He says, because of his great love for us, God who was rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God made us alive and seated us with Jesus, and he did so through mercy. Mercy is when I don't get what I deserve. I deserved wrath. I deserved judgment. I deserved to be thumped. I didn't get any of that in his mercy. God withheld it all. The other side of the coin is grace. Grace is when I get things I don't deserve. I was made alive. I was given a seat in heaven. God brought me into his home, adopted me into his family, gave me stock options in the family business. That's right. I deserve none of that. But in grace, I got it all. So by way of review, what were we? We were dead. God made us alive. Why did he do that? Because he loved us. How did he do that? Through mercy and grace. See, according to Paul, that is why we are better off together with Jesus rather than living in isolation from him. And while I believe that to be true because the Bible says it's true, I also believe that to be true because, again, I lived that. Remember, getting to the point where I knew I was dead and empty on the inside and I was completely powerless to change that. I remember discovering Jesus is the thing that I'm looking for. I was on the service drive of 696 in my 1980 Chevy Chevette. <laughs> Fine motor carriage, right? And I said yes. I said yes to the, to the love and the mercy and the grace of God. And I experienced him taking my, my existence from death to life. Taking me from isolation to a life together with him. If today, whether you're sitting here, whether you're watching online, if you know 
Spiritually, you're empty and dead and you cannot fix this yourself. If you've had enough of isolation and you're ready to live together with Jesus, we're going to pray. I'd invite you to pray silently with me and say yes to God's love and mercy and grace. Let's pray together. Father, for some of us today, we just want to say thank you for life together with you, for the reminder of that truth. For some of us today, God, we just, we just want to confess to you. We've done what we shouldn't do. We have not done what we should. We have sinned. We have transgressed. And we are powerless to fix this ourselves. Father, forgive us, please, not because we've done something to deserve that, but because you sent Jesus who lived a life free from sin, who gave himself up as an offering, who, who did a work that we never could do and it is finished now. Father, we want to put our faith in him. We want to surrender all of who we are to him and follow him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.